Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. The relaxation of lockdown measures is leading to mechanical rebounds in the economy, as the recent US data flow shows. But will the effectiveness of the emergency measures be enough to ensure a sustainable recovery? In Europe, while Germany seems to be ahead of the curve and serene in its recovery, other member states do not enjoy the same low debt level or general credibility, and the role of the ECB seems more crucial than ever. It's Monday, June the 8th, I'm Gilles Moeck, and you're listening to Macrocast. National authorities find it difficult not to accelerate the normalization in activity, given the depth of the macroeconomic cost and the quick reward they can get in the data flow which in turn is saluted by financial markets, which thus contribute to a sort of feel-better sentiment. A fear of missing out on a V-shaped recovery could settle in, despite the risks. The city of Rio de Janeiro, for instance, is reopening, although the city is far from having controlled the epidemic. And if you want to have a deeper look on how the situation is getting out of hand in a large swathe of Latin America, please read the Macrocast newsletter. The link is in the description. At this stage, we believe the durations in economic activity merely reflect the mechanical supply-side reactions to the changes in the lockdown constraints, compounded, in some cases, by the specific features of the emergency stimulus. These movements can be quite abrupt and could be interpreted a bit too early as a sign that economies are absorbing the pandemic shock faster than expected. We have not yet seen much of the impact on demand, though, which we suspect will last longer. The recent U.S. data flow provides a near-perfect example of such spectacular mechanical rebound. It's a stupendous number. It's superb. Uh, there are many people who thought that this would be the historic uh, beginning of the Depression, 20% layoff. We'd start looking back to comparing it to 31, 33, uh, and that's off the table. Uh, I listened to the discussion. There are people who are saying what's lagging or leading, whatever. I mean, who the heck cares? I mean, the fact is, is that uh, we're back. The unemployment rate there unexpectedly fell by 1.4 percentage points between April and May, with the number of jobs rising by 2.5 million on the month. Some technical difficulties made the April and May readings less accurate than usual. For instance, some workers on furlough should have been classified as temporarily unemployed, but were kept as employed. But the changes in lockdown conditions explain quite well the numbers. Half of the total rise in employment came from hospitality, as this sector started to reopen. According to the open table data, bookings in restaurants were down 83% year-on-year at the end of May, against a minus 99.9% year-on-year at the end of April, with significant differences across the state, obviously. Still minus 99% in New York, but only minus 57% in Texas. The rebound was helped by the initial design of the Paycheck Protection Program, on which Washington has already spent more than $500 billion. Employers have until the end of June to rehire employees they had previously laid off since the beginning of the pandemic to maintain their chance to get the government loans turned into non-repayable subsidies. This has been extended to the end of December, but the news came only on June the 5th. Unsurprisingly, the main contribution to the decline in unemployment came from persons under temporary layoffs, down from 18.1 million in April to 15.3 million in May. But the number of permanent job losers continues to grow, 2.95 million in May from 2.6 in April and 1.9 before the pandemic. Moreover, a waiting room phenomenon is emerging. The workers who had lost their job before the pandemic or the new entrants cannot easily secure another one in the current circumstances. 
the number of persons who have been unemployed for more than 15 weeks on May the 12th has started to rise, from 1.9 million in February to 2.2 million in May. The financial market reacted a lot to the payroll data, but the US labor market has recouped only a small fraction of what it has lost. US employment is still more than 13% below its pre-pandemic level. In hospitality, still 42% of the pre-pandemic jobs are missing. We expect good surprises to materialize in the area as well as sectors reopen over there. We have already discussed in Macrocast our belief that traditional indicators, such as confidence surveys, are inaccurate in the current environment. But bottom-up assessments and real-time data are already pointing to a significant rebound in activity. In France, INSEE considers that activity in May has improved by 10 percentage points relative to April, if we average the estimates from its various points de conjoncture. Data from Google Trends would point to an even steeper rebound, 22 percentage points. The monthly growth rate in output in May, and probably even more so in June, is likely to be very positive. The output gap, though, would remain very high by the end of Q2. The moment of truth may well come by the end of the summer. Our baseline is that by and large, by July, most of the administrative impairments to economic activity would be lifted. By then, most of the mechanical rebound will be done. Businesses will still face significant headwinds. For instance, uncertainty about the pandemic itself, with the possibility of a second wave, which, as long as no vaccine is available, would depress investment, or potential weakness in world demand as activity in the southern hemisphere could still be affected by the pandemic's first wave. And finally, and maybe obviously, a higher level of debt. We think the size, timeliness, and quality of the policy stimulus, going beyond mere emergency measures, will remain crucial to sustain the recovery after the initial mechanical rebound. This will take more than temporarily protecting corporate cash flows. We discussed last week in some detail the next generation program of the European Commission. We like the design, but we are concerned about the time it will take to get effective disbursements, even more so in view of the latest noises coming from the European capitals, particularly Helsinki, whose reluctance would bring the frugal four to five. We concluded on the necessity for national governments to bridge the gap on their own before federal support becomes available. Germany, which had already produced a quite comprehensive first reaction plan, has been the first to strike last week. Not all of the 130 billion euros, 3.8% of GDP, of the measures announced last week will be spent in 2020, but we like the balance between tried and tested short-term fixes, for instance, a temporary decline in VAT by three points for the normal rate and two points for the reduced one, and more structural, lasting investment programs to support the green and digital transition, which would actually nicely complement the next-generation European initiative. The VAT cut alone would bring 20 billion euros to the economy. That's 1.2% of GDP spread over the second half of the year. This is quite a big boost for an economy which so far has done comparatively well through the pandemic shock. The change in tone in Berlin is quite striking. 
Before the Great Recession, Germany was raising its VAT rates while reducing payroll tax to boost its competitiveness, mimicking the effect of the currency depreciation within the military union. This time, it seems the country is not basking in its comparative resilience of the first half of the year and is taking the measure of the risks of a backlash via still-depressed foreign demand in the second half of the year, which would be particularly detrimental to this export-driven economy. Instead of reacting as it had done over the last 20 years by engaging in even more cost compression, Berlin has opted to support domestic demand while preparing for reconversion of some of its key sectors. The absence of a blanket car scrappage measure, since only electric vehicles would be eligible to the 6,000 euros government bonus, is quite telling from that point of view. We are now waiting for the response of the other member states. Most of them do not enjoy the low debt level and general credibility of Germany. The quantum of support they will be able to provide beyond the emergency measures is very dependent on their conviction their debt sustainability conditions are not jeopardized. This, of course, is where the ECB comes into play. Last week, we expressed our expectation the central bank would top up its pandemic emergency purchase program, the PEP, by between 350 and 400 billion euros, which was, in our calculation, what would provide them with enough room for maneuver to deliver on their pledge to be in the market at least until the end of the year. They provided more than this, 600 billion, but also extended the term to at least June 2021. We're actually a bit puzzled by this. Providing more visibility to the market by extending the PEP horizon is welcome, of course, but at the current pace of purchases, the ECB would exhaust this new quantum by February of next year. The governing council probably expects some peace and quiet to come back to the markets once the worst of the pandemic is behind us, which would allow them to show more restraint in their spending phase. But we suspect the June 2020 governing council meeting will not stay as the last one at which a top-up to the PEP is decided. Habitual listeners or readers of Macrocast may remember that our focus is not just on the current purchases, but also on the reinvestment strategy of the ECB. We think it is crucial that a significant share of the public debt issued as a direct response to the pandemic is held over a long horizon on the central bank's balance sheet through reinvestments, so that it is effectively sterilized and does not trigger a sharp tightening in financial conditions when it comes back to the market. The ECB has delivered on this as well, with a pledge to reinvest PEP until at least the end of 2022. But we were happier about the following sentence in the ECB's introductory statement. I quote, In any case, the future roll-off of the PEP portfolio will be managed to avoid interference with the appropriate monetary policy stance, end of quote. This may sound vague, but it is crucial in our view as it responds precisely to our concern. The ECB will not offload PEP in a way which would make financial conditions inappropriate. Still, a key question is the final horizon of PEP. The ECB's chief economist, Philip Lane, elaborated on this in his post-meeting blog post. PEP, I quote, protects smooth policy transmission and supports lower funding conditions for the real economy, with the aim of lifting the medium-term inflation projection closer to the pre-crisis expected trajectory, end of quote. To simplify, PEP is there to avoid a deflationary shock. This is consistent with the profile of the ECB's new forecasts. Indeed, inflation would reach a trough at only 0% year-on-year in Q4 2020 before re-accelerating somewhat to 0.2% year-on-year in Q1 2021 and 0.8% in Q2. The idea, then, 
seems to be that by mid-2021 and the new term of PEP, although inflation will still be significantly below the central bank's target, it will be sufficiently far from negative territory to switch off the program. What would happen next? Well, we suppose that normal quantitative easing would take the lead again. Inflation would be at only 1.4% year-on-year in Q4 2022 in the ECB's new forecasts, which would hardly qualify as complying with the target. One may regret that the ECB is not more straightforward in its strategy, but we think that implicitly the governing council is providing quite a lot of visibility on loose financial conditions for long. It won't be a walk in the park, though. We have discussed in Macrocast several times the difficulty the ECB will face with its limits as it constantly tops up QE. This discussion is not yet explicit, although the German Constitutional Court ruling makes it increasingly difficult to avoid entirely. As we expected, Christine Lagarde did not directly respond to the GCC, even if she was keen to demonstrate the ECB is acting in a proportionate manner, she used the word twice, and expressed her hope a good solution, I quote, would be found by the German stakeholders. Still, the issue may not want to go away on its own. There will be new episodes. This week's focus. The most interesting day this week in terms of economic releases or economic decisions will be Wednesday. Uh, This day will have uh, the next announcement by the Fed, the FOMC. We do not expect any decision, uh, but given the situation in which we are, any color, any change in tone uh, would be quite interesting. And we'll have a hard look at their uh, new economic projections. Same day, we'll have uh, CPI inflation in the US for May. Interesting as well. So far, the reaction has been quite a steep uh, deceleration in inflation with a clear deflationary risk. We need to follow this quite closely. The world awakens with a vigorous appetite after a forced hibernation. But behind the spontaneous start, the road to sustainable recovery is long and full of obstacles. I would be very happy to travel this road with you starting next Monday. And in the meantime, have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.